episode 457 of the Cyber Law Podcast. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and we're about to express views that nobody agrees with. Not our institutions, not our clients, not our friends, our family, our pets, maybe not even us, three weeks from today. Joining me for the news roundup, I'm Gabrielle A., who is a Steptoe Data Protection, Privacy, and Cybersecurity Partner. Paul Rosenzweig, who's a founder of Red Branch Consulting and formerly with the Department of Homeland Security. Maury Schenk, London-based lawyer and technologist. I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the host and really the chief provocateur in today's program. A lot of AI talk, and we're gonna. this is going to be a heavy European discussion as well. But let's start with some AI stories. Maury, OpenAI has come up with a tool that they say is kind of a down payment on explainability in which their AI will analyze other people's AI to figure out what's actually leading to the results that it produces. I thought that was an interesting, clearly it's an important thing we ought to be doing. I wasn't completely convinced that OpenAI's tool got us very far down the road. Yeah, you know, there's an XKCD cartoon that some guy's got a big pile of linear algebra that he stores to stores to make his AI model. And in fact, that's what an AI model is. It's a big pile of linear algebra. And in the big models like GPT-4, we don't know exactly how many parameters, but it's hundreds of billions. And we, we don't know how these work. And even OpenAI's new tool, they use GPT-4, although they use it for compute, so they could use some other big model to a- analyze GPT-2, which is much smaller. And even doing so, they get some very preliminary conclusions about how a few neurons are acting. It's got some value, but I think with the amount of compute required and the fact that these neurons are just a big pile of math, it's going to be very hard to map this to a true human explanation. So it's interesting research. It's important to try to understand, but I'm I'm skeptical that we're anywhere near real explainability. Yeah, that's what I thought. It was like 0.3% of all the neurons, they actually were able to offer some sort of explanation, which might be just the neuron that says, if you've got TH, probably the next letter is E. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes even AI results, which seem sort of explainable to really translate to a human explanation. In one of my companies, we've done some research on clustering of topics. And they kind of cluster neat topics, but then to give a name to that cluster, very hard to do. I'm getting a little bit technical here, but it really gets hard when you, because it's so technical in detail, it's very hard to reach human conclusions from this stuff, except at the output level. Okay, so I nice try, uh, and I'm glad somebody's working on it, and maybe we'll see progress. Here's another one where, again, you want people to be working on it to kind of, you know, you can argue about the, the result, which is Anthropic is basically producing what he calls a constitution for its AI, which is really just a bunch of rules that it wants the AI to follow. Does it make sense to have a separate set of rules for AI, or... Should you be doing that through the human training? This one I'm a lot more enthusiastic about. So the reason that ChatGPT has been able, was able to be released was that OpenAI came up with this method of what's called RLHF, reinforcement learning with human feedback. And they basically ran sample answers of the way that they would want it to answer through humans and had them rate it. Basically, 
Anthropic's approach is to do the same thing, but to ask the language model to do that. But language models we've discovered kind of know how to do that. I mean, instead of having humans tell it, well, you give them instructions and they follow the instructions. So I think this is a pretty promising line of research. And some of the rules that they suggested were kind of interesting, like, you know, avoiding existential risk, some predictable ones like... Oh. That, that, avoiding existential risk is a freebie because there's nothing that these GPTs can do now that is existentially risky. I, some of the rules, though, were, you know, don't carry out microaggressions. Oh, for God's sake. I mean, they're called microaggressions for a reason. Well, I think... The rules, some of the rules, and you could disagree what the rules should be. They're intensely political. One of the things that I thought was really neat about this approach is you can choose your rules. You know, you if this yes. is the approach, you could tell the model which rules to apply. And I think that's pretty cool. So I'm cautiously optimistic about this approach. Okay. It, it does make sense. I agree with you. And, you know, human feedback is as biased as the rules, maybe more so. I'm really in love with this study that was done at Stanford that I that I did my one of my recent cyber tunes about, in which it turned out that before you trained the, these large language models, if you compared the answers that they gave on public opinion polls, where you could compare them to different groups of Americans, they agreed with low-income, politically moderate Protestant and Catholic. Americans. But once they'd been trained with that great old human feedback, they agreed with really rich people who were not religious at all. And I thought, you know, that's exactly what I thought Silicon Valley was trying to do. And it's sort of nice to see it actually disclosed in data. But there's no good way to get around the fact that the people who are designing these AIs are going to build political biases in. You, you cannot help but have some kind of bias. I like your idea that you should say, well, fine, you write your own rules and uh, then you can have your own biases. Yep. Okay. Last one. Again, kind of talking technology more than law, but it's, it's fun. Open source. This is a hot topic. It's really hot in Europe because they ain't got nothing but open source because they got no companies that can do any of this. And so the idea of the this is a story in MIT Tech Review, but there's a bunch of them, that says AI open source is really important, really valuable, but might not survive as the companies that are actually paying for a lot of the compute start to close down access to their technology. Maury, do you think that's the most likely outcome or can open source folks reverse engineer these models as they come out and start building stuff that is almost as good and a whole lot cheaper. I think it's a real problem, but it's, as usual, there's some nuance to this. The open source models have been extremely valuable. And the company I was referring to before, LearnerShape, that I help run, we rely heavily on open source and we've been betting heavily on the fact that it helps us do what we want to do. And that's true for a lot of companies. Now, OpenAI is coming out with some great models like GPT-4 and some embeddings models and stuff that you can buy access to. And it's pretty cheap and you can build lots of stuff on top of it. So I don't think it's the death knell of AI for there not to be open source. However, I think we should really care about having access to open source models because it's about control. You know, if OpenAI is the one running the model. We don't know what they're doing in the background trying to sell to us or buy us. The open source models, you can, you know, you can examine. 
and there's a lot more control over the model. So I think it is important. And if the models aren't open source, I think they will be in the hands of the big companies because these models are very expensive to produce. So when you say open source, you mean they they disclose all the weights and parameters? They use a public source of data to build the the models? I'm not sure. Open source kind of has this very warm and fuzzy sound to it, but it, it means something slightly different in the context of AI, doesn't it? Yeah, well, so in, in your, there, there's some variation in what it means, but it does mean and has meant for quite a few models that exactly what you said, though all of the weights are disclosed, the fully trained model and a lot of information on what the sources are. So in the case of GPT-3 and 3.5, I think we knew a lot about the sources, but the model was kept secret by OpenAI. Um, GPT-4, we don't even really know the sources or even the size of the model. We just see the outputs. And the Facebook Llama model that a lot is commonly used for open source, I think is open. My understanding, it's open in the way that you describe. Well, it's open because it leaked. They had released it under a relatively forgiving NDA, and then the whole thing leaked. Yeah, that fair enough. But there are some models that have been made open in a similar manner to that. Okay. Well, it will be very interesting to see. It was remarkable how good the, the those llama those models built on llama turned out to be, and it made everybody excited about open source. And of course, the European AI experts are very high on open source because that's really the only way they're going to get access to a lot of the cutting edge stuff. So it will be very interesting to see. I guess I should move to the AI Act, which the European Parliament has had to completely, in my view, retool in light of the GPT models that came out. And to my mind, they took a law that made sense. I mean, it wasn't a good law, but it was at least internally consistent. And they ended up kind of shoving a whole bunch of stuff into it to account for GPT that made it, I thought, less coherent, but more, that's my prejudice. What's your view? I agree. I think there's widespread agreement. There's debate, but widespread agreement that something has to be done to prevent the biggest risks from AI, like widespread misinformation. But the EU AI Act is, in my view, you could call it the EU AI Industry Destruction Act, because the requirements are so impractical that if you're an e, you know, if you're investing in an AI company, why would you put it in Europe? The act applies to you directly. If you're outside of Europe, you still got to. It applies to your sales into Europe, but at least you got the freedom to experiment. And some of the requirements are just completely impractical. You know, fully vetted data sets. I mean, okay, we want the data sets to be understood, but data sets. You know, these big internet data sets are impossible to. They're all messy. Vet. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think it's a it's sad for the EU, I mean it's sad for the EU AI industry and it will be very difficult for compliance. It's good for lawyers. That's about all I can say about it. Yeah, but anything that's good for lawyers is probably bad for especially startup industries. Yeah, I kind of felt the same way, and I was, it was interesting. As the, part of the problem is because there are no big companies lobbying on this, the European Parliament could just do whatever it wanted, whatever sounded good, they just say, ah, oh, sure, stick that in too. And so that made it even less realistic. But a lot of this stuff I thought was particularly interesting because it was really about how you use AI. 
So it says you can't do real-time public biometric identification. In fact, if you've got video, you can't do a biometric ID unless it's for law enforcement purposes and only for a serious crime and only with judicial approval. And I thought to myself, well, so, okay, that is a restriction that applies only in Europe. I can build whatever I want outside Europe. And then the question is, can my customers buy it and use it in Europe? And at the end of the day, a lot of them can't. But so what? It's not going to change the industry. It's only going to change the ability of European companies and governments to buy and use AI, which doesn't sound like it's an ideal outcome for Europe. I'm a little worried, Stuart, how much we're agreeing on everything. <laughs> I will do my best to, to be more outrageous. But yes, I, my guess is that this is kind of GDPR hubris. And a lot of the people in the European Parliament said, look at us. Once again, we have pioneered and set the standard for AI just as we did with GDPR. I just don't think it's going to work the same way because except for their ability to regulate you know, the data you might have used, the European connection here is as a consumer. And if they say, well, we won't consume it, they just don't get it. I agree completely. GDPR, agree with it or not, it's done a very good job of producing higher privacy standards in Europe and being a bit of a lighthouse for the world. I don't see that happening with the EU AI Act. So, on Gabriel, you have been very patient while I have been saying rude things about the European Parliament. And but yeah, you know, as you know, that's my consistent view of the world. You're free to talk AI and the AI Act if you think we got that wrong. But I'm going to ask you about whole bunch of stuff that has been happening in the courts and in the parliament beyond that. So first, let me ask, this is your moment to say that Maury and I are just wrong on the AI Act. Well, I think you are a bit harsh on, on, on the EU. I think we, we need to acknowledge that the EU, you know, is trying to lead in that respect. And of course, you know, it's difficult to regulate, you know, new technology and it comes with hurdles. And I do think that, you know, the EU is trying its best. I don't know whether at the end of the day, the tech that will be adopted will be practical. I mean, for sure, it's going to be extremely difficult for company to implement it. But I do think that, you know, we should acknowledge the effort and we can see as a legislative process goes that, you know, already, you know, the text that was presented two years ago is already outdated. And then, you know, the legislator need to change it to encompass generative AI that was not foreseen at the beginning. So for sure, it's going to be work in progress. And, and contrary to what you stated, Stuart, I do think that there is heavy lobbying. I mean, from big company, from smaller company, but there is a lot going on in Brussels okay. right now. Well, it's not showing up in the end product, as far as I can tell. But, okay, fair enough. Uh, you're right. The European Union gets at least a participation medal for having tried. So that's good. Uh, all right. So there's a bunch of personal data cases kicking around. And what we have, I think, are two opinions by advocate generals about how the, the law ought to be applied in certain circumstances. One of them, I think, about what happens if you discover that your data was stored with a company that's been hacked and you get worried that 
you know, your data is going to be used. Is that enough to say I've been damaged? And I think the other was the Deutsche Wohnen case about whether fines can be imposed on corporations without actually figuring out which individual human being made the mistake. Is that the two cases that just got just came down? Correct. And there is also a third one, but for which we only have the opinion of the Advocate General. But basically, I mean, with all these decisions, the concept of liability under GDPR is taking shape. Because, I mean, in the German case that you refer to, we get some guidance on the sanction regime under GDPR. And then in the two other cases, we get some clarification regarding data subject right to compensation. And if I could summarize what I thought the rule was, it's that just saying, oh, I'm anxious because my data might be disclosed, that's not a compensatable event. But almost anything north of that is. You don't have to show severe injury or severe anxiety. You don't have to show that you had a, a material harm. Some of these psychological damages from data protection violations are going to be compensatable. Probably. I wouldn't say that it's automatic because, I mean, what the court told us that is that, I mean, you need to, to demonstrate three conditions. So the first one, you need to demonstrate an infringement of the GDPR, then a damage and a link between the damage and the infringement. And under GDPR, so you do have a possibility to compensate non-material damage. So it's not only material damage, but you can also compensate non-material damage. And what is interesting in, in, in the judgment from the court and the opinion of the Advocate General is that they clarify that the concept of damage is autonomous concept under EU law. So it doesn't matter how it is qualified under national law. This is a European concept. And the court tells us that you don't need to reach a specific threshold of seriousness, but to the extent that you can demonstrate that an infringement of the GDPR has resulted in negative consequences on you, this could be sufficient to, to ground a claim for compensation. And then it goes to the state to decide how much that compensation is. So the state could say, well, fine, that's one euro. Correct. Because, I mean, the GDPR does not provide any guidance on, you know, what amount should be granted. So that means that we need to go back to national law and it will depend on each jurisdiction. So that means that probably we'll have some discrepancy from one EU member state to the other because it's a matter of national procedural rules. So the other thing I wanted to ask you about was that the EU now has produced draft rules on cybersecurity labeling for cloud providers. And this is one where France was aggressively and well out in front of Europe saying, you ought to make sure that all those big American companies can't really provide, can't claim to be secure because we all know the intelligence services are going to be in their pockets. And it looks to me as though the EU has kind of bought that French approach. Am I right? Yeah, and I do think this is, you know, a protectionist approach because, I mean, we don't have 
strong cloud computing company in Europe. And clearly, I mean, if you take that into account and take the broader concept of the whole issue of data transfer, this is clearly an attempt from the EU to strengthen its industry and make sure that, you know, we are not basically dependent on U.S. company when it comes to cloud computing. Oh, you don't have to be dependent on a U.S. company. You may be dependent on a Chinese company. <laughs> well, which could also be an issue with data transfer. Yeah, but maybe someday if, if, the, if the European Commission grows a spine, but I'm not sure. Okay, so those rules, although I had one question about those rules. Those rules were basically, if I understand it, the EU said, this is the rule, but... It's local option at member states whether to adopt it or not. And if that's the case, why wouldn't Poland or Ireland say, hey, if you set up shop with your data centers in our territory, we're not going to adopt this rule and we're not going to require that you partner with a local supplier of services. And isn't this just going to hurt the countries that most aggressively adopt the EU rule? Well, I do think that we can expect a uniform application of this rule. I mean, there's no interest, you know, in member states competing with each other. So I do think that they will try to align. Yeah. It's just that it looked to me as though, as it was written, Poland could say, yeah, we're not going to adopt that rule. And obviously there'll be competitive reasons not to adopt it, I would have thought. I guess Germany can still say, well, we're going to adopt it. And if you want to sell in Germany, you're my God, going to have to tie up with SAP or somebody like that, or Deutsche Telekom, more likely. But it limits the impact of the protectionism to the countries that are most enamored of protectionism. Well, I mean, certainly this could have an impact with respect to public procurement. I mean, this could certainly be something that is being used in the context of public procurement. But I mean, how it's going to be applied among member states, I mean, we still need to see. But again, you know, I do think that member states are trying to align to the extent possible. And again, you know, the objective is not to compete between member states, but against foreign uh, companies. That's the whole point of the European <laughs> Union is so as not to compete among Europeans, but instead to, to have a single approach to the United States. I, I think you're also discounting kind of the California effect, which is that, you know, California sets American car, uh, right. car mileage rules and stuff. The big economies win. So even if, you know, the Czech Republic wanted to diverge for competition reasons, Nobody will follow them because Germany will set the rules. Germany and France will set the rules. Germany, France, and Italy may set the rules. But Holland, Belgium, Denmark, they don't get a say in the end, even if they wanted to take advantage of that. You could be right. I, and with the departure of the UK, it's less likely you can get a, a coalition of dissenters to, to stand up to a, a Franco-German condominium. Okay. Well, Paul... I wanted to ask you to talk a little bit about what was a very cool FBI takedown. It goes under the heading of Snake. It was a Russian intelligence malware that's been around for 20 years. And the FBI took it down with Operation, I thought this was not a bad name, Operation Medusa, basically cutting the head off the snakes that had grown up from Russia. It's even better because the malware, the software they used went by the name Perseus. 
who is the Greek who killed Medusa. So, so this was, you know, for all you Greek mythology fans out there and, you know, back references to ancient Greek culture, this was a very European operation, if you will. <laughs> um, but nonetheless, as you said, it was really quite a big deal. The snake malware, the details are recounted in painful depth in a cybersecurity advisory from CISA that I invite anybody who wants the details to be But Basically, it was a long-term bot network with command and control in over 50 countries that had slowly wormed its way into all sorts of different vulnerable places, including one NATO country that was penetrated. The FBI didn't say which, so we don't know, but one NATO country that was penetrated at a diplomatic level, American industry. It was probably one of the largest penetrations that we've seen in the last 10 years. Rivaling but not, not, it, was, it was not exactly widespread, right? They were really careful about how they were much very they used careful, it. but it kind of rivaled, I think, Hafnium in the scale and scope of the degree to which their efforts penetrated. The Russia, this was actually, I mean, by the FBI's account, the Russians, you know, most long-term under-the-radar effort. And what the, what the FBI and DOJ did, which is also quite remarkable, is they went and they got an order under Rule 41 of the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure, which I remember, you know, 15 years ago, that was kind of a remarkable legal device, and now it's a relatively commonplace. They've used it a couple times in the last few years, including with Hafnium and Cyber Cyclops. And then they sent back our own malware called Perseus, which is reported to have directed the snake malware to self-destruct and turn itself off and kill its own command and control systems. And this is also quite remarkable to me because I remember, Stuart, when we were talking about whether self-help like this was legal and whether or not it had international implications, because, of course, much of the activity that was undertaken by Perseus occurred offshore, outside the United States, on servers that were residing, well, again, we don't know for sure, but in some of these 50 countries, including, no doubt, in countries with which we are friends, like the European Union, and no doubt countries with which we are not friends, like the Soviet, you know, like the Russians. And so this is really the hallmark of what we in America have come to think of as a very aggressive set of steps to counter cyber intrusions that are in many ways setting a very different set of international norms as well as you know new rules for domestic authorization in the United States. It's a big deal. Two other points that I think are worthwhile. One is I think the timing of this, which is that I, I think it is no coincidence that the FBI pulled the trigger on the takedown right now when Russia's engagement in the Ukraine is kind of on its back foot. And so they have, I think, systematically chosen now is the moment to disable some of Russia's best intelligence gathering uh, tools, yep. that at least the ones that we know of. Because they uh, were and, sitting on this for years. They were sitting on this for years. They've been sitting on this for a number of years. And then they, the other thing, of course, is that I will watch with interest how long it takes for the Russian FSB to regenerate this capability in a different form. 
Um, it'll come back. Some of it is bound to be solid. It, uh, of course it is. And, you know, so call it a, a six-month setback, a year-long setback, which is, I think, the best that one can hope for in, the, in this kind of espionage conflict that we're engaged in cybersafe. So uh, overall, you know, new law in the United States, new international norms, timing tied to the Russia-Ukraine war, symbolic of extended American aggressiveness that is different from what we were, say, five years ago or 10 years ago. Overall, just a real game changer. Oh, and by the way, the longest term, most insidious of Russia's efforts that we've ever seen and publicly exposed. Yeah, so, and very well done. Uh, there's a lot of a lot of praise for the uh, the technical capability of this in that CISO report. They were really impressed. So. I, I, I think on both sides, actually. I mean, yeah. the Russian efforts over 20 years were extremely sophisticated and the American efforts to combat it equally so. We are seeing a sea change in this. <laughs> so let me take you to China because there have been a couple of things, stories. The one that I thought was most interesting is that the Chinese authorities raided CapVision. They've gone after a few other consulting firms and that's what CapVision is, but this one looked like it was a you know, the third time, it's clearly a policy now. I, I think that's absolutely right. The other two were the Mintz Group and Bain and Company, Bain being the one that you know, Mitt Romney used to be a member of. And these are just what you and I would characterize as American consulting groups. They were they you know, compiled information on Chinese markets, companies, policies, assessed Chinese law and engagement, helped foreigners find partners in China. So they were doing the stuff that you and I would all consider to be at the core of, of good consultative work for foreigners. The fact that they were targeted under China's new counter-terrorism, counter-espionage laws as potential illegal actors is actually a pretty significant effort. So much so that the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which has historically been one of the boosters of American-Chinese engagement and has always been talking about needing to open up China, needing American, you know, taking down trade barriers, was opposed, for example, just a few years ago to most of President Trump's anti-Chinese anti economic activity, has all of a sudden started sounding a different note and expressing caution in engagement. Well, so I agree with you and I don't. There's no doubt that this is going to be bad for China in the long run because people can't get enough information to know whether they're making good investments and they're going to not want to make those investments. And they're going to, you know, if anything, the pressure is on to demonstrate that you're being careful about your partners in China. And so cutting off the flow of due diligence information is going to be bad for investment. But, you know, when I read about CapVision, it did sound as though a big part of their business model was one that you and I have probably seen, like GLG and some of the others, in which they would bring, this is called renting an expert, essentially, and they would, they, they have this enormous roster of experts. You call them up and say, I've got a problem, and they say, here are four experts that we can bring in, and we'll pay them really $1,000, $1,500 an hour sometimes to get on the phone and give you their expert wisdom for an hour. And I've done some of that and, and I finally stopped. And I stopped for a reason that I think 
the Chinese government may have been thinking about. I stopped because when you're brought in like that, you've got an hour, they're paying you well, they're asking you questions, and sooner or later, those questions start to get very close to the things that you know best because you're working for somebody else or you worked for the government. And there are conflicts built into those sorts of very lucrative and very short-term engagements. And so if you were doing that in China, it would look a lot like bribery of officials or commercial bribery or commercial espionage. It is very easy if you're not very careful about the ethical limits that you're going to set on what you're going to say for people to slop over into saying things that are somebody else's trade secret. You know, the point is well taken, Stuart, but I think it kind of obscures the context. I mean, first off, neither Mince nor Bain have that, that same was not GLG, right. GLG model, and they were hit first. Second, this enforcement of the counterterrorism, new counterterrorism rule, comes on the heels of China's uh, cybersecurity rules that have required greater information. It also comes on the heels, frankly, of America's imposition of greater economic sanctions through things like the CHIPS Act. So if it had been restricted just to cap vision, I would take your point and maybe accept it as an explanation. But in the context of an ongoing escalation of economic challenges, I tend not to see it that way. I tend to see it as part of an increasing isolationism, an increasing self-dependence model, if you want to be positive about it from a Chinese perspective, an increasing, if you will, decoupling of American and Chinese interests. And frankly, you know, my perspective is that American companies with deep presences in China, whether they're manufacturing companies or like clothing manufacturing or tech companies like who manufacture the goods there like Apple or, or who do a lot of work there like Microsoft, all of them ought to have at this point Plan B. contingency plans. And frankly, if I were a shareholder at Apple or Microsoft or GM, I'd be asking, you know, what is your contingency plan? And when are we moving to Singapore? <laughs> ah, exactly. Or, uh, or India. Or, or, or India. Yes. Yep. Okay. So the other China story is probably less interesting, but Baidu is playing fast follower in AI. And they have put chat GPT stuff on their search engine. Bori, did you ever, uh, have you tried it? I haven't actually tried it. It's It's called... AI mate, you know, you wonder whether they asked an Australian consultant. Oh, really? To I name thought, it. okay, it's not ErnieBot? I think ErnieBot was one, may, they may have ErnieBot, but they, it's branded AI mate at the moment, okay. you know, as, so some Australian would may have thought, good AI mate. <laughs> but I, it's got a few problems along the lines of the isolationist tendency that Paul was just talking about. It's only trained on Chinese content because of Chinese rules, which is really going to limit its effectiveness. And, you know, with ChatGPT and related ones, we know that the more guardrails you put on, the less accurate it is, the more rules it has restricting what it can say. And in China, where there's just a ton of rules restricting what you can say, it will be hard to make something effective. And reports are that it's not very effective. So China has been a bit of a leader in AI, you know, competing with the U.S. But at the moment, in these large language models, they don't seem to be doing as well. 
I wonder if, ironically, search is not a good place to be doing this. I went to Bard recently and, and gave it this assignment. I said, I want you to tell me the 10 most populous countries and then the sa- give me the same ranking of countries by the number of people between the ages of 20 and 30. So with the idea that actually, if you're worried about the future, you should worry about the countries that are most populous in that demographic, and then compare the rankings. And that was what I asked Bard to do. And it produced a list that was wrong on its face. It was ranking people wrong, just looking at the math. It gave me an analysis that said that India was the most populous country when at the time it was not. And it made me think, God, this is really, this is very persuasive if you don't look too closely, but it's just wrong in many ways. And if they can't get that right, which wasn't a very hard assignment, it didn't seem to me, it makes me worry that, you know, I didn't check the numbers. It could be the numbers are wrong. So there are a lot of problems if you're going to rely on this for the factual, for the facts of the matter. And it seems to me, if you have to double check everything they tell you, you might as well not use it as a search engine. Yeah, well, this is why I think Google did not add, Google was a leader in this stuff, but they did not add it to their service when this kind of technology was available in the past couple of years because they were afraid of exactly that. Now, driven by OpenAI, they've concluded that it's an existential threat to you know, the way people are getting information. So they are adding it a lot. But I agree with you. These large language models at the moment are great as idea generators to produce a draft of something, to help you create ideas. But as factual research tools, they're extremely spotty and dangerous. Yeah, sort of artificial mediocrity at best. Okay, let's talk about social media age verification. Paul, it looks to me as though... That's just going to sweep the country. I think that's absolutely right. It's passed in Utah. It's under consideration at the federal level. It has, I think, interesting technological challenges to it. Age verification is, I mean, right now there are two methods that one can use. One is to kind of scan in a governmental ID to verify the age of somebody. And since we're talking about limits that start sometimes you know, 0 to 12, 12 to 15, 15 to 18, and 18 and older. You know, this means government school IDs for 12-year-olds and sort of thing, which has obvious privacy concerns. The other one is, you know, there's a, Meta has a program that they use called Yodi that is actually capable of guessing your age from your physiognomy. You, Stuart, it would say is 48. <laughs> yes, so I'd like to believe. <laughs> it's actually really good at gender, right? But yeah. not so good at age, plus or minus two years. And if you're like me, 63, whether I'm 61 or 65 doesn't matter. Though if I'm 65, I start getting my Medicare. But if you're if the, if you're 16 and the difference is between being treated as a 14-year-old or as an 18-year-old, that's a, a huge problem. There's obvious... You know, First Amendment issues about rights to receive information, which even, you know, minors have under, you know, existing Supreme Court precedent, though how stable that precedent is, is, is debatable in the current courts. On the other hand, and I've just outlined the problem, it's actually really, it's going to sweep the country because it has a lot of real benefits, right? Yeah. Mo- I mean, 
Every psychologist in the world will tell you these days about any one of a dozen studies about the way in which pervasive access to social media is causing you know, significant psychological harm, especially to teenagers, teenage girls who get bullied, teenage boys who get bullied, that sort of thing. And so back when you and I were at DHS, we, used to, we had this mantra that it was always the children that would get the, you know, that was the camel's nose in, in the tent, that you enacted a restriction to protect the children and then you expanded it to protect everybody else. This is another instance of that, a well-meaning, well-justified instance with lots of interesting technological and legal issues behind it. It is going to be rampant within five years. Yeah, that's my guess. Is it? And yes, there are problems, but those problems are subject to navigation. They, they will never be perfect, but I don't think that the First Amendment is going to require a perfect verification process. And I cannot believe that ad tech doesn't know exactly how, a, how old all of us are. So it, it seems to me unlikely or it will be easy for Facebook or some of the other big social media companies to just embed a, an age cookie on your machine and it wouldn't identify you. It just, it's on your machine. And the person who uses this, who has certain other characteristics is X age. You're, you're more optimistic than I am, Stuart. I come from an era in which I had a fake ID to go drinking. I am guessing that those cookies are readily, readily, unless and until we get everybody online with a verified digital identity that is uniquely tied to each individual, something that will, you know, all of a sudden, I mean, I can just hear the gun rights people screaming about age verifications for access to guns. And this is something Americans are allergic to. And I don't know where it's going to come out. I'm a little less optimistic than you. Okay. I, if you said to me, this will work for a lot of rule followers, but there will always be people who break the rules and to whom this rule is not effective and say, okay, so what's the problem there? Right? It certainly doesn't make it unconstitutional that it doesn't catch every last rule breaker. Oh, no, I, I don't think that's the unconstitutionality. I just question whether or not the number of rule followers in the 16 to 18 year old category will be 75 to 85 percent, as you posit, or more like my drinking age buddies, which puts us at the 15 to 20 percent. Right. You might be right. You might be right. Because if you're talking about access to porn, you could, you could get those numbers. Uh, oh, that is exactly what I'm thinking of is access to pornography as a 16-year-old, you know, well. It's still easier probably to get a VPN. Okay. Last topic is criminal phone systems. The UK just had a decision saying that the exploitation of EncroChat was legal in the UK. And then there was a new story about the Italian mafia's new encryption system, also, I think, subject to, to attack. So, Maury, I, that UK ruling was long and complicated, but at the end of the day, they just said, yeah, the UK law enforcement authorities who used EncroChat to catch a bunch of people who were engaged in lawbreaking uh, were acting legally. Yeah, the UK authorities got a warrant from the French and Dutch authorities who had broken, uh, to get the information on EncroChat users from the French and Dutch authorities who had broken the network. 
the UK Investigatory Powers Act is quite specific about what circumstances require what kind of warrant. And key to the UK reasoning under this to get just one specific warrant was that EncroChat was fundamentally a criminal enterprise. It was mainly used for criminal activity. And in fact, the UK got almost 3,000 arrests out of 9,000 users in the UK. So it does seem to be largely criminal. And effectively, the Investigatory Powers Tribunal agreed with that and said that the approach that the UK authorities had taken to getting the warrant was legitimate. Yeah. And Paul, the, the Italian mafia thing, it just raises the question, are we going to be able to sell this, hey, this phone's just for criminals, a scam over and over again to crooks? Well, I mean, criminals are not the smartest of people in many situations. The Mafia phone was run by something called the number one business company. And it follows, I think, in the footsteps of other instances in which law enforcement have either penetrated encrypted communications or, in the case of the Anon network, you know, created the encrypted communication itself and sold it overseas as a as a as a as an as a useful way of hiding your activities. The story about the number one business company it ends with the owners of it, and I'm putting air quotes out there for those who can't see me, sending out a notice that they were changing their signing certificates so that. Anybody who got an update of their app would know it was from them. What to make of this? Who is, you know, are the, is that from the FBI? Is that from the Italian Carbonieri yeah, or Interpol? Or is that a sign that the Carbonieri and Interpol have been inside the network and now they have to fix it? Any change in circumstances for users of encrypted technology for malicious conduct has to set off alarm bells everywhere it's received and it might as well be dead so i you know i think that the proliferation of encrypted technology is being met with a proliferation of ways in which law enforcement are penetrating that encrypted technology it's really quite interesting because it's a different take on the whole going dark debate which kind of says that the fbi's concerns were maybe overblown uh, well, maybe. I, but, well, really, maybe. I don't, I don't know. Maybe. I think the real message here is you just, you know, if you're a crook, you signal. Uh, yeah. Or, or Telegram. Well, not Telegram because that's Russian. Or WhatsApp. Yeah. And so that puts more pressure on those two technologies in the long run because they'll become the criminal tool of choice. Okay. Quick hits and we're done. NSA, lots of changes coming. General Paul Nakasone, uh, who's run the place for the last four years is going to step down sometime in the next year. And you know, people have generally been happy with his tenure. So that'll be a big change. And then his deputy, the way NSA works is they bring in a general or an admiral for a term of three to four or five years. And, and then he moves on. But the rest of NSA has, was there before he got there and will be there after he leaves. And they have a kind of self-perpetuating mechanism for determining who gets promoted. So the, the career staff is, of course, they're responsive to the head of NSA, but the guy who really knows where all the bodies are buried is the deputy director. George Barnes has been doing that for even longer than Nakasone has been there, and he's stepping down. So there's going to be a big change at NSA. 
lots of speculation about who's going to get that job, which I will not repeat because usually with those that speculation, the people who know aren't talking and the people who are talking don't know. So okay, we can look forward to some changes there. The EU Parliament, I promise to raise this, has voted to ask the Commission to renegotiate and reconsider its decision to treat the U.S. as adequate for data protection purposes. The U.S. made some changes, created a little court for Europeans, and offered some modest assurances and said that ought to do it. And the commission, which is starting to regret having started this whole mess, uh, said, yeah, that'll do fine. And the EU parliament has said, oh, you know, maybe you should do a better job. And we'll see. The big problem for all of these deals is going to be the European Court of Justice. And my prediction is none of this will satisfy the European Court of Justice. And so in two or three years, we'll be back yelling at Europe and complaining about American intelligence again. And last, Maury, Google is rolling out passkeys instead of passwords. They've actually had them in our Android phones for a while. Have you actually knowingly used passkeys? I haven't yet, although it seems like a good idea. I use Google Federated Authentication a fair amount. I mean, basically, it's a cryptographic token tied to your browser and to the specific website you're accessing. So it's a whole lot better than passwords for a lot of reasons. To, to break it, they ha would have to have access to your device and to your authentication method, which could be a pin at the weekend or a pattern or a biometric reader. And so it's not 100% secure if they get you there and can, and can well, if they get your pin then and you lose your device, you're in trouble. But it's a lot more secure than passwords, and you can't hack a database of Everybody passcodes. Everybody should use it if they can. Yeah. Or it, wherever it's, just, it's available. And the banks, you know, with their stupid, you know, what was your favorite place to visit when you were a child questions and their voice recognition. But that they should just can all that and move to passkeys. Yeah. Use it with some reasonably secure secondary verification method, like a, a, like a pattern or a biometric or geometric. Reader. Or a biometric, yes, agreed. Okay, that's it. And Gabriel, thank you very much. Paul, Maury, thanks for joining us. If you know somebody, I should say to our audience who wants to be working for the podcast, we are looking for somebody who can intern with us, mostly doing the sound editing, but also some suggestions for stories that we should be covering. If you're interested in doing that, send your CV or bio to cyberlawpodcast at gmail.com. That's also the address to send our questions, your questions, comments, feedback, or better, more effective, leave a review. And uh, if we find it entertaining, we'll read it on the air. This has been episode 457 of the Cycle Law Podcast. I'm a little worried, Stuart, how much we're agreeing on everything. <laughs>